This is Archive Atlanta, episode 198, Zoning History Replay. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So let me tell you a little story. This has never happened. I had an episode, I wrote the episode, I recorded the episode, and I sat down to edit it, and it just didn't feel good. It was a very short story about a white working class family that lived in the Bolton area. And it basically, long story short, two of their sons were known locally in the 40s and 50s because they evaded police and lived along the Chattahoochee River. And I've done murders, of course, and I have talked about people's personal, you know, pe- people and their families and stuff. But this story just felt really exploitative. Like there was really no positive news. Like the family just kind of lived in tragedy and imprisonment. And and it didn't happen 200 years ago. Like the, the one person in the story died in 2014. And so it didn't feel right. It didn't feel right. And then I decided to go with my gut. And so here we are. It is, it is Thursday night and I have no backup plan. So I decided it would be timely and relevant to re-release an episode that I did in February of 2021 um, about Atlanta's zoning history. Now I've done two. So I did an episode about the Ashley Ordinance. If you have not listened to that, I recommend that one. That's kind of the earliest history of Atlanta's um, racialized zoning. But in February, I interviewed Josh Humphreys with the city of Atlanta. And I know that they have restarted um, their efforts to amend the zoning code and they're having public meetings and all that. So now that it is back in the news, kind of at the forefront of everyone's mind, I thought I'd re-release this episode and I'll be back next week with a new one for you guys. This week we're talking about zoning, which I know sounds really boring, but I promise you it's not. Across the United States, zoning regulations have been historically linked to race and or class and Atlanta is no different. The city of Atlanta's Office of Housing and Community Development recently created a revised zoning plan after years of community input and engagement. And I got to interview Josh Humphreys, the director of the department, and asked him about the history of the city with zoning, the new plan, and then what the next governmental steps are to getting it implemented. Right now, we're the 316th densest city in the U.S., so there is lots of room to grow. And it's up to Atlanta residents to decide how that growth is going to happen. Will we continue to be one of the most racially and economically segregated cities in the country? Or will we have a place where all different income levels can live in the same neighborhoods? Before we get started, let's cover the basics of zoning, and then I'm going to quickly bridge the gap between the Ashley Ordinance and the 1929 zoning plan. Zoning is just the way that governments control the physical development of land and how individual property can be used. Typically, the categories are residential, industrial, recreational, and commercial. Besides use, zoning can also regulate height, size, and density, and, you know, things like whether you can have animals there or not. In the United States, the earliest efforts to zone began in 1899 in Washington, D.C. with something simple, just like building height regulations. But the start of the modern movement dates back to Los Angeles in 1908. The L.A. City Council adopted the nation's first citywide zoning ordinance, which protected expanding residential areas from industrial, and it created eight industrial districts. The law could force businesses to relocate without any compensation, and it was highly racialized because it targeted laundries, which were almost all owned by Chinese residents. 
Baltimore first passed racialized zoning in 1910, and then other U.S. cities followed suit, including Atlanta, which tried to pass theirs in 1913. After several legal challenges, Atlanta proposed a new plan that removed residences, and so the Georgia High Court blessed that. But soon after that, the United States Supreme Court struck down um, a very, very similar racial um, zoning ordinance in Kentucky. And so that kind of like all the lower courts fell into line and overturned some of these um, ordinances that cities had. In 1920, Robert Witten was paid $500 to visit Atlanta for one week and create a preliminary zoning survey. He lived in Cleveland, but he was the drafter of the New York City zoning law that everybody loved, and he was considered an expert on quote-unquote zoning problems. By the following year, his proposals were making their way through Atlanta's business community, with strong support from the Atlanta Real Estate Board, who believed that zoning plans would increase property values, and quote, stop haphazard building of skyscrapers in Atlanta's downtown business section, end quote. By March of 1922, there was an anti-zoning group that emerged led by William Ansley, and their members thought that zoning limited property owners' rights, and it was generally, quote-unquote, un-American. The thing about Witten's zoning plan of 1922 was that it was barely different from the original unconstitutional one. He had specific sections labeled R1 white and R2 colored, and he said, verbatim, Quote, residential separation would instill in blacks a more intelligent and responsible citizenship, end quote. This plan was also struck down by legal challenges, unsurprising, but no fear. The city of Atlanta then used a planning initiative to use these same areas labeled as black and white to control development. So when we get our first official zoning code in 1929, it looks just like the previous attempts, but with the specific racialized language taking out, the general ideas, however, were not abandoned. To add one more thing, Josh does mention the Homeowners Loan Corporation. That was a 1938 federal security map that they did of cities across the country. In Atlanta, it divided the city into 111 residential neighborhoods, and then it graded each of them from A to D. So the idea was this could assess the risk of granting home loans to people in these neighborhoods. So guess who got graded an A? They they were neighborhoods with high levels of home ownership, single-family housing, racial restrictions on who could buy property, and then areas C and D were renters, and non-white people. So you can see this map. Um, I'm going to try to remember to put a link in the show notes. But without further ado, here's my talk with Josh. Tell me who you are and then what you do for the city of Atlanta. And then because I'm curious as to how Atlanta started talking about all this. Uh, My name is Josh Humphreys. I'm the director of the Office of Housing and Community Development with the city of Atlanta. Um, And our project, uh, Atlanta City Design Housing, um, focuses on the the, the current state of housing in Atlanta um, and the challenges we face today looks critically at the, the history of housing policy in the city and how we got here. Uh, we believe that in order to understand the, the complexities of, of housing affordability and the challenges that we have today, we need to understand how we got here and the explicit decisions and policy uh, maneuvers that were made that put us here. And the project then builds on that and, and seeks to address the exclusionary policies that still exist today, the policies that um, that were designed for racial and economic exclusion, um, and proposes solutions that we think will create a better Atlanta, a more inclusive Atlanta, and one where residents across all incomes and races um, can call the city home and have an opportunity to, to thrive and, and prosper for the next generation. However far back you can go with the history stuff, tell me what you know. 
For the sake of, of this project, we've started with the 1929 zoning code um, because it was the first one that was not overturned by either uh, state or federal Supreme Courts. I think those are important for the history of, of how we got to the 29 zoning code and that those were racially explicit zoning codes or proposals uh, of zoning codes. But the 29 code, what I think is most interesting about that one is that's that really starts a new era happened in other U.S. cities too, but of basically abandoning attempts to racialize the zoning code and begin leaning on economic exclusion as a proxy for racial exclusion. I understand. So that was everybody kind of being like, we've tried this now for you know more than half a decade. It's not going to work. Plan B. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing I think that's interesting about the 29 zoning code is that that worked. And that's basically the same functional type of zoning that we have today. It was a little more permissive. It allowed duplexes and some things that we don't allow today. But as far as the structure of like, we want uh, single family typologies here and we want apartments there because we don't want people who could live in apartment buildings near our single family areas, like using kind of housing typologies as a way of getting at economic exclusion. Um, and one of the things that's interesting, if you look around a lot of Atlanta's neighborhoods that were part of the city limits in 29, most of the buildings that, that you see, especially the small apartment buildings, but a lot of the duplexes as well, were all built in like the late teens, early 20s in Atlanta. That was kind of my question because we had such a boom, especially in the 20s with Forward Atlanta and all that. But but there were a lot of white people renting those apartments. So how did that logic fit in? You know what I mean? Where it was. Um, it was imperfect. I mean, that's why they wanted to do racialized. I mean, so I think that it's, it's, it's this one two punch that happens and, and 29 zoning code is happening at the local level. By 1933, 34, you've got the New Deal that's bringing the Homeowners Loan Corporation and the FHA in at the federal level saying, we're only going to back mortgages in white neighborhoods that have deed restrictions that are single family zoned. Right? You have this kind of entrance of the federally backed mortgage that does the racially explicit thing that the zoning code couldn't do. So the zoning code is accomplishing economic segregation in the city, right? It's saying like rich people here or people of a certain income at least can can afford to live here. And if you can't afford to have a, uh, to live in a, you know, a, a detached structure, right? If you would need to live in an apartment building, this is primarily in the way the zoning, uh, the categories and, and spaces in the city were created there. They're primarily black and brown communities, immigrant communities. Um, and what's what happens then when the FHA and HLLC come along with redlining, is that the apartments that were then considered high density and that was not good. So then they're they're deemed as quote unquote hazardous because what we want is single family detached structures and especially those that have deed restrictions that don't sell to black and brown residents. And so we'll give loans to those and we're refusing any government backed loans to the, the apartment districts in the city. So that happens for 20, 30 years through the 30s, 40s. And then in the, by the 1950s, you've got Redlining has given way to urban renewal projects. So you have uh, so now like you've 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 cut off the, the spigot, right? You have no access to funding. So then you create these all these alternative markets. You know, you have a, a rent to own type markets where if you ever are late on a single lease, you lose all your equity. And then you force overcrowding because people can't afford to renovate their home. They don't have access to this brand new nationwide source of capital. The white residents, so-called white residents at the time are able to access. So you create a, an economic desperation and it's kind of diverging paths, right? You, you create wealth in these new, almost exclusively white single family areas of the city. 
and you cut off all resources to these communities. So, so then Urban Real comes along and says, well, these are slums. Yes, that's- We created I them, but now we're gonna call them slums. And now we're gonna use more federal dollars to, to just destroy them, completely erase them. You know, they become parks and they become stadiums like Fulton County Stadium. And then freeways are, are kind of a, a, a double whammy because freeways are used almost often, I mean, often pave over um, and destroy redline neighborhoods. Um, but they do so in order, it's another form of subsidy, of a federal subsidy and local choice to build the suburb, which at that point still, when most of the freeways were built, the suburbs were only accessible to white residents through the FHA deed restrictions and how difficult it is. So like you have this kind of, this massive kind of nationwide approach that requires like both local forces and federal forces and, and programs to subsidize the creation of the highway system in order to ensure that the white residents now moving to the suburbs have, have access to the city. And we're gonna, we're gonna like bore through your neighborhood in order to make that happen. They also are often used as border lines. The West End and the um, AUC area is a, is a notable one, right? You've got I-20 that kind of bifurcates right there. And there are records of uh, um, residents associations and uh, business associations in the West End, which was a predominantly white neighborhood at the time, requesting that I-20 be put as a border between them and the AUC, you know, Morehouse, Spellman, uh, Clark Atlanta, because they didn't want black residents moving into their neighborhood. Wow. So, so there's so in addition to redlining, you have this kind of like like carving up of the city, all all in really racially explicit ways. And and we we did some analysis on the the redline neighborhoods in Atlanta. Eighty six percent of them today, they you know, redlining is the nineteen thirties. So you're looking eighty plus years ago. Or eighty six percent of redlined uh, neighborhoods in the nineteen thirties are either still low income neighborhoods today or no longer exist. And this is in Atlanta or is it like a nationwide thing? Uh, Atlanta's a little bit higher than nationwide. Nationwide is somewhere around 70%. Atlanta's 86. Wow. And so this plan is a radical change to our current zoning? The plan itself, uh, you know, one thing we were really careful of, and I think learning our history helped us in this, is that we wanted solutions that were specific to Atlanta. Um, cities across the country are focusing on affordable housing and they're proposing zoning changes and fi financing options. Um, but we wanted to make sure that the proposals that, that we put together um, as a result of, of years of public engagement around this issue, too, you know, we, we consolidated it. But it was, we, these were not necessarily original ideas. We worked for a long time uh, with residents of the city to, to come up with these. But they're, they're nuanced, right? We, we believe that it's important to um, preserve the unique characteristics of the neighborhood. I mean, we're on a podcast about the history of Atlanta, right? So it's like we're preserving the, hi the history of the neighborhoods um, and the unique characteristics that make Atlanta a unique place to live and an interesting place to live. But at the same time, we also recognize that we're a city that um, is facing affordability challenges in large part because of the large population growth that we're seeing right now. Um, and we expect that population growth to continue. And right now we're around 500,000 residents. We expect by 2050 or so to be 1.2 million residents. In order to accommodate that growth, well, one, growth can be a good thing, right? It doesn't have to be a bad thing. I think growth can create more amenities for residents and, and create a higher quality of living. Some of the, the highest quality of living places in the world are high, highly dense places. Um, and Atlanta is the 316th most densely populated city in the United States. Uh, so we've got a lot of room to, to grow more dense and more urban as a city, um, but all the while kind of preserving the unique uh, characteristics that make Atlanta different than other US cities. And so these proposals, uh, while they are um, 
substantial in their change. We don't propose anything that would change the character of the city, right? We, we you know, so to take uh, one area of the city that we focus on is we, we call them conservation areas. These are primarily the areas that, that we would identify as the single family type areas of the city. This is where all the tree canopy is in the city. We think that it needs to stay like that. It needs to look and feel a lot like it does. And that's part of honoring the history of the city. And what neighborhoods are those? Like, are there some off the top of your head that well, there are neighborhoods. I mean, some of these are in town neighborhoods, uh, like like the West End, um, or more suburban places, kind of out Cascade Road, or like like less slightly less dense areas that uh, that are that were developed in the fifties and sixties and seventies more so. Um, but all of these areas right now they're almost exclusively zoned for single family housing, so you can't really add a, any kind of additional dwelling. And so what we're proposing is not large apartment buildings in these areas. We're proposing like you should be able to put a basement apartment in your house if you want to. And you should be able to put an accessory dwelling unit in your backyard if you want to. You want to put an attachment on your house or you've got an extra room that you could convert into something. Um, we want to give you the option to do that as a homeowner um, and an option to participate in creating housing supply. You could financially benefit from it, um, which, which I think is great. But also the kinds of units it would, this type of flexibility would create are by their very nature, just more affordable units. A basement yeah. apartment, because it's a basement apartment, is less expensive than the, that single family house that it's in. Yeah, that and makes so sense. So you're creating, you're creating more affordable, more like market rate affordable, no government subsidy involved in it, which I think is important, right? We can't subsidize our way out of this problem. But you're, but it's also honoring the history of the city. It still is going to look like a detached single family structure. It's not going to, you're not going to notice much of it, but it, it creates this opportunity for, for growth. And it also allows us to reinstitute some things that existed um, prior to this exclusionary single family zoning, right? Like duplexes and uh, basement apartments, accessory dwelling unit. That was a part of Atlanta in the 19-teens and 20s. Um, and even in the 1929 zoning code, most of that was still allowed. It was really after the, after World War II in the 50s and 60s and 70s where we got rid of those allowances. Um, so we're reintroducing things that were part of what made Atlanta Atlanta to begin with, to allow this kind of mixed income opportunities. Because let's take let's say you have a house in Virginia Highland and it costs, you know, seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars to buy the house in there. Well now if you can put a basement apart in in there. Someone that's at a completely different income level now has access to this block, this neighborhood. And so it creates more vibrant neighborhoods. You know, we're one of the most uh, racially and economically segregated cities in the country. And part of that's because we've created zoning that doesn't allow those types of kind of nuanced, um, intricate um, housing typologies. You know, I, I lived in um, Brooklyn for, for years and uh, I tell people all the time we, we were living in, on a brownstone block and like there are brownstones on the block that would sell for like well over a million dollars. But we were only able to live there because one, the brownstone we lived in had been converted into three apartments and yeah. we lived in one of the units in there. So then we lived in a, on a block where there were people on the block who could buy a million dollar house, whoever those people are, maybe one day I'll meet one of them. And <laughs> And then, and then, you know, and it creates a, a different kind of texture and feel and understanding of people at different income levels that I think, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of in Atlanta. And I think that's important to becoming a more inclusive place. It's not just affordability, but it's affordability with people at different income levels being able to share the same spaces. And so I think that this would reintroduce that part that I think we've lost in Atlanta in a lot of ways. I'm 100% agree. It's, I grew up where I grew up in New York was very blue collar working class. But and when I moved to Atlanta 15 years now, I noticed that immediately. Like we're very, mm -hmm. that's one end and the other end. Yeah. And there is like a missing, a missing middle. 
But my question, I, I feel like this is the, the touchy subject, maybe. Like, are you getting pushback from the, you know, maybe especially the neighborhoods that are solely single family and their larger, more extensive homes and they do not want, you know, because I guess what I'm trying to say is we got to this place because of biases that we had as people. And so it's like, how do you how do you get those people to understand that and kind of get on board with the fact that we need to change this? You're right. We did not get here by accident. We got here intentionally. And so I think that's the first step is understanding that. Let's not hide that. Let's not act like we don't know how we got here. That's why the, our project starts um, and really focuses on the history of how we got here, because it was not by accident. And, and we don't have the, the challenges we have today as a city by accident. And so making a better city will require the same level of intentionality, maybe more intentionality, um, and a willingness of the residents of the city of Atlanta to change, to embrace that change, to ask the question, what city do we want to become? Um, we were, we were, we inherited this city with the decisions that were made oftentimes before any of us were around. What do we want to become? Do we, do we want to continue that? Say, well, that's the way it's always been, or that's the way it's been for the last 40 years. So we don't want to change. Or do we want to embrace a city that works better for everyone that to really embrace a, a more inclusive vision of Atlanta? And that means that we all have to be willing to change a little bit. And I, and I think that uh, at the end of the day, the work that we did, it, I think it asks um, a lot of critical questions and looks at the history of the city um, in, in, in a way that I think helps helps us all to become more aware with our, of our past. But we've got to decide together collectively as residents of the city of Atlanta, if this is the, if, what kind of city we want to become. You know, all we can do is put together proposals and, and think through exactly what that can look like um, based on the feedback we've gotten and the history we've learned. But I think that that question is to be to be determined. I, you know, I don't know where we want to, to stand. I think I think we understand the the challenges before us and have an opportunity to be better than we were before. But whether or not we get there, I think is, is up to all of us collectively and our in our will to do so. And so I, I would say to to folks who are against it, you know, I mean, change is hard. I know that change is hard. And I know that uh, that it feels may, maybe like very distant, the history that we're talking about. But I also think that that subtle, nuanced, um, appropriate change is, is how you make cities better. And so, you know, I encourage you to take a to look at this project and ask the question about what role you want to play in the city's future. In 50 years, what do you want them to say about us and what we did to make Atlanta um, and, and how it works today? Um, because I think that we have a chance to do something really special here. I agree. And then I'm just so I'm aware of how this works, you guys made this wonderful plan. Is it just a concept right now? Is it something that's, I guess what I'm saying is like the next governmental steps, like how does this get implemented? So uh, right now we are in kind of public engagement. Now the project's been released. You know, we did our first round in 18 and 19 of like public engagement about like identifying the problem. What are we researching? Um, so, and then now that we actually have the project out there. Um, we're doing engagement with residents. We're going to all the NPUs in the city. We've got a lot of public presentations related to that. That will lead us into hopefully by the end of this quarter is what we're looking at. So kind of end of March, maybe beginning of April, that we'll introduce a first round of legislation that'll go before city council that'll address a lot of the core policy proposals that are in here. We do have two that are that are currently in the works and that uh, that are moving as well. But the, the general process for these, because most of these are zoning amendments, um, they go through, they're introduced at city council. 
Then they go to the MPUs. And since most of these impact city, the, the, the zoning code citywide, they'll go to all 25 MPUs. And wow. they'll be in the MPUs for two months. So our team uh, will be working uh, with every MPU in the city. We did a present, quick presentation this month on it, and then we'll do more um, in, in the next few months. And we'll go, we'll present on the individual policies and kind of what they are, what they are, with fact sheets and other things to get people up. And then in the second month, the NPU will vote to approve or not approve these. Um, and then once all of that has, has been done, it'll go to what's called the zoning review board, which then uh, takes into account the recommendations of the MPUs and then makes a final vote of recommendation. Then that vote goes back to city council through the zoning committee. Um, and the zoning committee then votes uh, to recommend to the larger city council committee and then they would do a final vote. So it is, it is a multiple, multiple step kind of engagement process and lots of votes uh, between where we are now and where we hope to be. Um, all that said, like, you know, if we introduce this legislation, you know, in the next couple of months that we're looking sometime in the summer, it would likely be uh, approved. Wow, this is exciting. I'm very curious now to kind of listen, listen in on how, how people are taking it in the MPUs. This is really, this is really cool. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's zoning history, its plans for the future, and how we can make that happen. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.